Hi, this is Steve Poor, and welcome to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Well, we're now at 22 episodes, and we've had guests from across the legal profession. We've heard from entrepreneurs, academics, thought leaders, and folks with a variety of perspectives ranging from in-house to big law and back. We've had a lot of focus in the first few months on the business of law. We're going to keep that as we go forward, but broaden the focus to include people who are working in other areas of the legal system. But we thought now would be a great time to look backwards as we've hit the summer months and pull out a few key themes from our initial set of conversations. So while we give our guests a summer break, we thought for this and the next two episodes, I might share some of my favorite moments from the podcast so far and some thoughts from my own journey that were triggered by the conversations with our guests. Now, these recaps will be shorter than the regular episodes, but we think we'll find them equally rich with insights. So to get started, we wanted to explore sort of the initial topic of innovation itself. I guess it's probably not surprising that this topic came up frequently, given our focus on pioneers and pathfinders and folks trying to find a different way to approach the delivery of legal services. But it was interesting to me that in 2021, at the tail end, let's hope, of the pandemic. Many of our guests mused on the meaning and their work around innovation, even though at least at a superficial level, the practice of law looks very different than it did just a couple of years ago. So some of our conversations centered around what is the meaning of innovation? Are there more innovative techniques being deployed now? What's been the meaning of new entrants? But we thought we'd start sort of these recaps by sort of going back to the basics When I was learning my craft as an employment litigator, I was trained by one of the great senior employment litigators, the late, great Mike Warner. And I'd go into Mike's office and I'd have a conversation about an evidentiary question or a civil procedure question. And Mike would look over his glasses at me and say, well, go back and read the rule and come back and talk to me. And what I learned is that sometimes you got to go back to the basics. So we're going to go back and we're going to read the rules as we think about innovation. And if we think about what innovation is, I saw an interesting definition from the IDO folks, which is a global design and innovation company. And they define innovation as follows, and I'm quoting, innovation is the ability to generate and execute new ideas, incremental, evolutionary, or revolutionary. And it starts with creativity. Creativity is the ability to look past the obvious, to transcend traditional ways of seeing the world, to create something new. It was interesting to me that one of our very first guests, Dr. Heidi Gardner, who is a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School and co-founder of the research advisory firm Gardner & Company, who focuses her work on what she calls smart collaboration, gave us really a similar but equally excellent definition of innovation. She described it in the following way. Innovation is not creativity. That's where a lot of people go wrong. Creativity is only half of innovation. Innovation is creativity applied. And if it's just big, grand, novel, out-of-the-box thinking, it's still just a big idea. Until we figure out how to apply it and make it useful and meaningful, it is not true innovation. Now, if you start with creativity, that has a tendency to frighten off lawyers, I think. 
because we don't think our skills lend themselves to creativity. We think about artists and writers and the creative types, and we don't think we are. But if we think about it as approaching problem solving differently with a different perspective, perhaps one informed by other people and other disciplines, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about creativity. We're talking about the ability to look at problems through a different lens and accept different viewpoints. When we started our journey down the Lean Six Sigma route at SciFarth back in 2004, 2005, one of the first techniques we were taught were Kaizen sessions, which are improvement sessions that bring in different voices. And for the lawyers in the group, it was a challenge because A, they were taking a different approach to problem solving. But B, they balked at having other disciplines in the room. That's not the same case now, but we're talking 15, 20 years ago. But what we learned rapidly was that the allied professionals, the paraprofessionals, the administrative assistants, the doctors, the, the on and on, brought a different perspective and a different combination of viewpoints that allowed the group to be creative, even if any one of us was not as creative as we might think we needed to be. It was a group ability to have it. And what we found is that the other problem we had in applying innovation and creativity was the assumption around what the problem is we were trying to solve and that we, we were rarely doing what we needed to do to get to what the underlying problem is. Because I, I think what we've learned is that in order to successfully apply innovation, and in SciFarth we talk about applied innovation, we don't talk about innovation just generally, you first have to know exactly what problem you're solving. And we're not the only profession that has this challenge. There are a host of professions that are finding a different way in a different environment, either technologically or through skill sets. And one of my favorite moments in the podcast was the discussion by Cat Moon, who is the great Vanderbilt Law professor and great thinker around the profession. I was curious about her involvement with the radiology department at Vanderbilt. So I asked her about it, and she described her work with the radiology department as a way of learning how to solve problems from different people. Let's listen in to Kat talk about that. I am very big on looking around to see how other people have solved problems like the ones we face, right? And it's actually a core element of effective decision-making, which, by the way, is the topic I've been teaching my leading and law students recently, so I'm a little obsessed with, <laughs> with the <laughs> for decision-making right now. Um, and so if you know, we recognize we face a lot of really substantial challenges in the legal profession kind of across a wide spectrum. And so if we look around and see how have people kind of similarly situated with similar challenges face these, radiology as a discipline has had to come to grips with the fact that technology is rapidly encroaching on kind of the daily bread and butter of many radiologists, at least theoretically moving quickly into from a practical perspective. And so as, as, again, a discipline, the folks who are wanting to evolve rather than cling to a model that is disappearing have embraced human-centered design to say, okay, we have these unique skills. How can we leverage them to continue to provide value to people? So if there are certain things that machines are going to be able to do better, then let's embrace that 
to use that as a superpower and let's figure out what our superpower as human radiologists are. The chair of the department at Vanderbilt, Reed Omri, is one of those folks who has just embraced this mindset. So this is kind of the macro level for the discipline itself. Mm-hmm. And he has gone all in. And so he has had everyone who works on his team get trained in human-centered design. And they've been just really keenly focused on innovation. And, you know, in some respects, it's a survival. It's a necessity for survival. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they come at it from a place we have value to provide. Let's figure out what that looks like in the 21st century, because it's not what it has looked like. And guess what? It's really exciting and a hell of a lot more fun than just doing the same old thing. For the next hundred years. Mm-hmm. So that mindset, you know, so this is kind of the macro level, like these are the people in my institution doing these amazing things. And so we connected through a mutual colleague and we're like, ah, oh, we, we are trying to do the same thing in two different places. And we realized that there are so many commonalities between the challenges we face. The largest one being bringing people along with us. Right. And so <laughs> The other stuff mm-hmm. is actually kind of easy, <laughs> but it's the people who are hard. Now, this involvement with other people and problem solving and combined creativity can be challenging for lawyers who tend to see only the legal dimensions of problems. We have this challenge all the time. I work with our tech R&D function at the firm, Cypharth Labs, and we're constantly challenged by our stakeholders who come to us and who are, to use a term that maybe he's used too much, solution jump, failing to get to the problem and just thinking they want the shiny object. And Susan Hackett, a great consultant in the business and former GC of the ACC, she and I had an extensive conversation about changes in the industry. And of course, we ended up on the topic of lawyers and innovation and how for some lawyers, technology was seen as a solution to problems in the industry. That's all there is. There's no more to it. But I think one thing we've learned is that You have to identify the problem and recognize that there are multiple possible solutions to the problem. It's not just technology. It's up to us to harness technology, but that only comes from an understanding of the problem at hand. And in the course of our conversation, Susan sort of talked in the following way about the nature of innovation and the profession. Let's listen in. We look at what clients need. If you do any kind of a needs assessment with, for instance, a corporate client, I'm, I'm more in the corporate realm than I am in other kinds of legal representation realms. But if you look at a needs assessment of what clients need, they need problems solved. And those problems are inevitably business problems. And you know that my favorite saying is that clients don't have legal problems, they have business problems, right? So when you go into that environment and you talk with them about what they want, they want people who are thinking at the highest level. They want people who understand not only the fact that their business is becoming digital, for instance, but that the the method by which they perform their work in the company is increasingly digital. And here are these people in the legal department with red wells and pads of paper and pens trying to figure out how to avoid technology or only use it for tasks that were you know, automated 30 years ago in every right. other business environment. And we're still trying, we're still calling it innovation to figure out how to use a database in legal practice. 
I mean, oh, come yes, on. We are. That, that's we are. not innovation. People talk about what we're looking at with the changes that are going on in the profession and what's coming for the future. And it's not about stuff that had to do with innovation. We're not, we're not inventing technology. That's not our role. Our role is how to figure out how to better harness it so we can spend more time solving client problems, doing what we do, which is really smart thinking and advising and trusted counseling. The past few years has seen a proliferation of innovation in the industry. We can't go anywhere without people talking about innovation of this, disruptive innovation that. It's become hyped. But one of the great trends that I've seen in the industry that's very different from where we started 10 or 15 years ago has been the role of allied professionals in the professional. There, there are many, many more at the table. This is a positive and really a welcome change, which brings its own set of challenges, I won't kid you, to lawyers. Jason Barnwell, the assistant GC at Microsoft, talked about the need for these voices at the table in the following way. One of our biggest challenges is we select for, train, recognize, reward, and promote people for their critical thinking skills. And, and that basically comes down to, this is why these things that look very similar are different. That's why we need some different perspectives and some different skill sets and some different inputs into the conventional legal approach, which is critical. Like having a sharp lawyer knife is absolutely critical, but you need to combine that with some other things. As Jason points out, this involvement of other people brings a different perspective. It's the critical thinking needed to analyze and look at problems and come up with different applications of solution sets. In this regard, I had a great conversation with one of my favorite allied professionals, JM of Six Parsecs, and a host of other activities. She and I talked about why the involvement of other professionals doesn't let lawyers off the hook, that to be innovative, lawyers must learn new ways of thinking, how to integrate new people, how to think differently about their work, their organizations. But we talked about how lawyers can contribute to so-called fit-for-purpose solutions. Let's listen in to Jay. So this phrase fit for purpose, I think is really important to highlight. So thank you for calling that out because, you know, I think even with the best of intentions and some of the more mature and better executed efforts in the big law segment to, to really change the way services are delivered, the way they're packaged, the way teams actually dispose of the work, these new skills, whether it's process improvement, whether it's legal project management, whether it's actually adoption of integration of new technologies, they tend to be bolt on changes. It's very difficult, I think, to get a large team of legal practitioners to rethink from the ground up how they do their work, right? And then with, mm -hmm. you know, some of the small wins, earlier wins that law firms are pursuing, perhaps some of the firms that are later on in, in adopting some of these new ideas, and then so they're playing catch up, you can't skip that change management work, right? You can't skip the work of working with the partners to kind of think more receptively to a different way of doing things. And then so the difference between using technology, for example, as a bolt-on or project management as a bolt-on versus kind of really looking at a mandate, looking at a tranche of work 
and then designing a team that's going to work completely differently, look at the problem differently, reframe the challenge, and, and really see new opportunities to create value. I mean, I think that the advantages that newcomers have, the, the insurgent providers have in that regard, I think is going to be insurmountable in some segments of the industry. Of course, there's always tranches of work that are relatively more protected because of the legal complexity the technical complexity of the legal issues involved require going to, you know, kind of top of market, best of breed advisors in that area. But there's lots and lots of, you know, needs that corporate clients have right now where complexity arises in, in different ways. It's not really the complexity of the legal questions involved. A lot of it will be complexity that hits the execution part. So whether it's political complexity, whether it's, you know, the number of touch points across the enterprise required, let's say, to manage contracts differently. Contracts is a perfect example where there's, you know, low to mid legal complexity, but there's immense scale complexity. There's immense political complexity. There's immense social complexity in, in driving change because that's an area where the client enterprise has to think differently about the way they make and spend money, right? So I think right. um, breaking apart complexity and assigning it to different, I think, flavors of technical expertise, different flavors of capabilities that service providers have to bring, that's the thinking that is new and different among the ALSPs. Another discussion similar to that I had with Lucy Basley of Inno Law Group, who had a very pointed take on how legal organizations are putting innovation in a box and exactly whose job it is to be innovative. She talked about it in the following way. And I think now it's, what I'm seeing is there is like assigned innovation programs and delegated innovation, you know, jobs. And, and, and I think that's hard. I think that's, that's a, it's a tall order. It is hard to just assign it, put innovation in a box, isn't it? It shouldn't be because it should be everybody's job. Every lawyer should be innovative. And I see this actually more at law firms because I work with law firms and in-house. In, in uh, most of my clients are corporate law departments, but I do some work with law firms on just advising on innovation strategy, innovation programs, doing some coaching and training, actually. And what I realized is there's this kind of double-edged sword with roles in the innovation space and in, innovation in the title call it what you want that's different and you know it's called something different at, at a lot of firms but it's now been like relegated to this person or little team and it kind of gets all the other attorneys off the hook is what it feels like and that's not okay so it's wonderful to have this designated team that actually is skilled and capable of doing things a little bit differently and changing things but that doesn't get everybody else off the hook so having the attention on a particular team is wonderful but everybody has to have that empowerment, enablement to be innovative. And, and frankly, the expectation, right, that everybody's innovative. And that's the same at law departments. Your practice now, as you said, is helping law firms, law departments become more innovative and to think about it so everybody can have it. Those are two variables that I suspect you don't find that often right. in these institutions. How do you create those enabling characteristics or work around them or compensate sure. for them? How do you deal with that? Yep. So this is one of those great examples where it all comes down to the people. It's all about the people. And I will say that every day because I've still not seen that disproven. 
uh, regardless of what widgets and gadgets and amazing technologies available, right? Uh, what you just described is about one, the individual lawyer, knowing how to be innovative, being educated, trained, informed on how to be a little bit more creative with their work, modernize their practice, right? Just, just thinking differently. Not everybody has that inherently, you know, in them, and, and that's okay. Parts of it can be taught for sure. First and foremost, it's opening the door to innovation, creating a, frankly, lower bar to entry. We can't just have this little club of innovation people swimming in the same little pond. We know who we are. We all know each other. That's not enough, right? In innovation isn't an exclusive club. It needs to kind of be opened up through, I think, some training, some empowerment, some coaching, some education, frankly. You know, I can't help but, but reference, right? I mean, I wrote a book on this because it made me feel like, you know, lawyers just, they can't access it, so they just shove it away. It's like, what, what is innovation? That's not my thing. It's, it's too complex. It's too complicated. Or I need to convert myself into a robot or learn to code immediately. And, and that's not the definition of innovation. And so I think simplifying that definition, making sure everybody sees a role that they have in it, and personalizing innovation. At the end of the day, though, it's about how we think differently, how we apply this critical analysis to solve a particular problem for a particular client or for a particular stakeholder in our organization. It's hard work. It requires thinking. It requires time. It requires ownership. And I talked to Nicole Braddock of Theory Principle, which is a legal design company, about how they approach this as they design technology products for use in the A to J space or for private law firms or for government entities. Start with the stakeholders, develop a prototype, test, refine, and perfect. This problem-solving framework works for all sorts of problems. It doesn't have to be technology. But Nicole starts from a technology standpoint, and she talked about the framework this way. And so generally we start with, what is the problem? Who are we solving it for? And we sort of typically will run a, a workshop with the client at the start to understand their perspective, get all of the information that they have in their head and really do a more of a level setting. And then from there, we'll go and interview all the stakeholders. So that will be potential users, that might be law firms, that might be staff members, it might be administrators, it might be IS teams, whoever might be touching different parts of the product or irrelevant. Our goal there is to drive insights that we will then bring back for a workshop where we say, okay, well, we ran through these issues with this group of people. You know, typically we have these huge spreadsheets of, sort of data that we collect from these interviews and turn them into insights, actionable insights, and say, okay, well, I know you thought that this was going to be a really important part for these users, but really, like, what we are hearing is that this is the big issue. So we'll go and share those insights back to the clients. Maybe we'll run a sketch session with the client. We might do some sort of high-level workflow, but we'll create a prototype typically from there, which can be, you know, usually it's a clickable mid-fidelity prototype. We take that back out to all the stakeholders. It's a slightly different round of interviews because this time we're saying, okay, here's a, here's a solution that we have. And we're trying to understand, you know, does this solution meet those needs and provide value? So it's a slightly different type of research. We come back, we iterate a few times, and then we move into, you know, full UX design full UI work, and then design development, which we do in, in sort of standard sprints, two-week sprints from style development cycles. And then we typically divide like a big product into several releases. We try to get a release out the door and live into the public. We get a ton of information from that. Then we'll move on to the next release and, and sort of course correct as we need to. As we think about problem solving and the application of creative ideas and executing those to solve and produce results for our clients. 
Because at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's about solving problems for our clients and producing results. We had an interesting conversation with Michelle DiStefano of Miami Law School and Laws Without Walls, whose conversation focused on listening, collaboration, and communication, and her work with multidisciplinary teams. And over the course of 12 years, leading 235 teams, I have a slew of exercises to get us through what I call the five steps to a project of worth. So how do you unpack the problem and how do you get on the same problem plane? How do you make sure that everyone is identifying the root cause of the problem as opposed to jumping to solve the problem? How do you ideate in a way that includes everyone's voice? How do you make sure we're building on each other's ideas as opposed to focusing on my idea? How do you develop a business plan? So we have exercises all along the way that are designed to move the teams through the projects, but also designed to change the way they communicate, the way they present, the way they bundle and market what they're presenting. And on a go forward, all of those tools and all of those exercises are useful in daily practice, in daily teaming, daily Zooming, daily problem solving. So I think I'll stop here for our first recap. I want to thank everybody for listening, both to this episode as well as to the 22 that have come before and the ones that will come after. I I hope you've gotten something of value about innovation and how you think about it, particularly for those of you who may be wondering how to start your journey down this path. There's no reason not to take the first step. And don't worry so much about what the second step is. Just focus on the first step. Small steps lead to big steps. And come back next week for our next episode on the theme of storytelling and change management. Thanks a lot and have a great week.